All right, so I'm going to introduce you to a friend of mine. I met him 18 years ago when I was teaching at a Christian school in Campbell River. I was teaching math and physics, and Derek Bird here moved into the room next to me after I'd been there. So I was a young teacher. He was a young teacher then, too. He moved in and started teaching English. So we met back then teaching at the Christian school. It was great, a good time, and our paths went different ways. And from there, I moved around a lot, and he stayed at the Christian school working with youth, serving youth. And part of our messages these days are serving people. I think we're going through a session on serving Derek's going to talk to us a bit about serving our youth. He's been working in the grade 8 to 12 English and in the Christian school having an influence in serving youth. Um, he is a father, a husband. He's got two boys. They are here as well. Uh, and his wife is here as well as he's an avid fisherman. Right now he's living in in. Cranbrook, there's too many C's, I keep going through all these C names. In Cranbrook, he's a fisherman, avid fisherman there. But most recently, he has written a book, um, a Christian book that's called, called Lost Teens, Lost Faith. And it's a great book, and I'm, I got a lot out of it when I read it, and I'm sure he's going to share a lot of the message from the stories from there, too. Please welcome Derek Bird. Right. Thank you, Ken. Let's, uh, well, my, the first slide today is Happy Mother's Day, right? Like, I, <laughs> I'm not gonna be talking about mothers today, but I thought, I thought the first thing I should do, because, you know, my wife is here and my, you know, my mom, she lives just down the road, she raised three boys, um, I thought, what a wonderful slide to start the day, Happy Mother's Day, because it is Mother's Day today. Now, in saying that, there are, you know, when I look at, when I look at kind of what I go through on Mother's Day, and not that Mother's Day is about me. <laughs> but I'm like totally stressed out. I don't know if any of the dads can, uh, can identify with this, but I'm totally stressed out, like leading, you know, the few days up to Mother's Day, because before that I even forget that Mother's Day is coming. And then like a day or two before I'm like, oh, oh no. It's Mother's Day coming up. And so I'm like having this massive panic and I'm thinking, well, who can I learn from? I can't learn from my dad on Mother's Day because his generation is totally different. On Mother's Day, what, what, what would he do? He'd be like, honey, you sit back. I'm going to do the dishes this morning. And be like, wow. <laughs> and it was such an event when my dad would do the dishes <laughs> that all of us boys would go into the kitchen. We'd be like, wow, dad's doing the dishes. And mom would be so exhausted just sitting in the living room. Because she didn't have to do dishes once out of the, you know, three, 364 days out of the year, 365 days out of the year. She didn't have to do it for one day. And there she was just kind of sitting there, kind of relaxing, too, too tired to even like worry about the fact that, you know, that we're all praising dad because, you know, he, he actually had his hands wet in the, in the dirty water, in the dishwater. So anyways, that, I, I didn't learn much from that. Um, but, uh, so yeah, our, I think that our generation is a little bit, is a little bit different as far as, uh, as far as fathers go. Um, because I do dishes quite often and it's not an event. And <laughs> although the first few years of marriage, I was like, why is nobody praising me? I'm doing the dishes. <laughs> anyways. Happy, happy Mother's Day. This day is all about you guys. All you mothers. Um, and, and my wife, she's, she is an awesome, she's an awesome mother because, you know, I, 
today, like all she wanted to do, she's like, honey, all I want to do is sleep in. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, we have to get up early to go to Creston. Um, so here we are. Uh, happy Mother's Day. Um, blessings, blessings on all the mothers here. Uh, today, though, um, I'm going to be talking uh, more about the next generation and the kids that are coming up behind us. Because that's where my passion is, and and I hope that um, I hope that today that um, that I'll I'll kind of be putting things out there that that everybody can identify a little bit with. Whether you're a teen, um, whether you're uh, somebody who's raised teens before, whether you are well on in your years, wherever you're at, um, we're actually all part of a faith community that is that is providing um that is kind of providing this next generation with how they see their faith. And so we all have we all have a hand in raising this next generation. So I put um below uh what Pastor Tom provided me with here. He said we serve and I said by engaging the souls of the next generation. Um I took a year off of teaching to uh to write a to write a book called Lost Teens Lost Faith and the subtitle is Lost Teens Lost Faith Engaging the Souls of the Next Generation because there was something that um there was something that I that I saw um as I was as I was teaching high school there was something that I saw and it was it was that we were we were losing we were losing a great number of kids after high school so we would, you know, we would raise, we would raise our kids up in the church and in the faith. And then, you know, then we'd push them out. And, uh, and then I'd, you know, I'd keep in contact with so many of them. And a lot of them would just kind of, it was, their faith was dead in the water after they left it. It actually, it actually reminded me a lot of, and if I think of this, um, this one metaphor, and I, I love, I actually love commercials. <laughs> I'm an odd person. I hate really bad commercials, but I love really good commercials. You know, the ones that make you cry, the telephone ones, right? I love those ones. Um, but there's one commercial that, that I don't think I ever actually saw it on TV. It was because it was this, um, it was this English language commercial from Germany that I stumbled across one day. And, and I'm gonna butcher the German language. I apologize to anybody, you know, with the last name of Schmidt or anybody here, um, because I'm gonna butcher the German language, but, but it, it went something like, the commercial went something like this, and it's this perfect metaphor for kind of what we do to our kids, and then as we kind of boot them out and say, okay, go get them, go tackle the world. Um, and it was, uh, it's, it's a, it's a, um, the setting is this Coast Guard station, and there's this young fella, and he's sitting at all the controllers, and and then there's there's the uh, the boss who comes in and he's all and he he's he's teaching him all about what everything in front of him is and he says this is das and this is das and this is das and this here this is mine sector right so don't come over into this sector because that's mine stay away from that and and then he's like gives him the two taps on the shoulder and then out he goes and there's this poor young fella and he's sitting there in front of you know in front of the the mic and all the instruments. And this call comes in. <laughs> it says, Mayday, Mayday, we are sinking. And this poor kid, it's like his first time, right? In control, he's like, hello? <laughs> he replies, Mayday, Mayday, we are sinking. I repeat, we are sinking. The German fella, hello, this is the German Coast Guard. <laughs> Mayday, we are sinking. What are you thinking about? <laughs> he says. 
And when I think <laughs> when I think of when I think of that commercial, I kind of it reminds me a lot of what we you know what we do to this you know to this next generation. We do a lot of this is Dawson, this is Dawson, you know this is what this is and this is what this is. Now go. And it's the now go part that um, that I was noticing that we're there's there's some different statistics out there. Um, one of them is a really high statistic, and it came out in about 2011, 2012, and it it was it was a bit of a disturbing statistic. Do you know how many? Um, does anybody here want to take a guess, or maybe somebody has heard this statistic before? How many people? How many? How many? How many of our kids actually leave the faith? After high school, does anybody want to take a guess? Ken would probably know because he's he's read the book, <laughs> so that's not fair. Ten percent, twenty percent. Are we talking fifty percent? Are we talking one out of every two children? What are we talking? This statistic said upwards of seventy percent. It actually said seventy-three percent of our kids after high school leave the faith. Now we could spend lots of time and we can debate. You know, well, maybe they go out and then they just experiment with life and then they come back a few years later, like probably some of you did. And maybe some of them go and they never return. And maybe that statistic is way, way too high. Maybe it's just way skewed because it's, you know, the wrong people doing it. We could sit here and debate that. You know what the reason that they said that kids leave the faith after high school? The reason was intellectual skepticism. In other words, they head out and then what they, you know, what they experience out there after we've raised them up doing that this is dust, this is dust, this is dust, what they experience out there is not anything that's congruent. And so they try to figure it out. They're always, they're, you know, they're trying to figure out, well, why doesn't this match up? And, and one of the, it was interesting because when the statistic came out, the school board at the school that I was working at at the time, they, they were like, we have to do something about this. We, we just have to do something about this. And so what they did, they, you know, the statistic and then they said, and then they said, okay, it's intellectual skepticism. So what are we going to do? They did the next logical thing. We, my wife and I, we brought up our kids on Vancouver Island. And um, so, you know, we have some universities that are really close. And so they brought in the, the best minds, you know, from Regent College. They brought them in and they put on an apologetics course. It's a great idea. It really is. That's what I would have done. That's the decision I would have made. So they, they brought them in and they, uh, they said, so, so these speakers were, you know, they were speaking to all the kids from the school. We did, you know, this crash apologetics course on the weekend. It was awesome. It was so good. And on Monday during Bible class, I said to the kids, I said, okay, let's unpack. Like, let's talk about all the stuff that we learned. And they said, uh, I said, how, first of all, how did you guys enjoy it? And they said, you know, one of the kids put up his hand, Mr. Bird, it was, it was awesome. It was really good. I said, okay, so what, you know, what kind of, what kind of new things did you learn? And they said, they said, well, we've heard all of those things before. And I was kind of like, yeah, right? As their Bible teacher, I was like, all right. And then I was like, hold on a sec. So if the reason that our kids are leaving the faith is because of intellectual skepticism, and yet we've actually done a really good job of teaching them what their faith is all about, then,
where's the incongruity? Incongruency. And so I, that's where that's that's kind of where um, where this desire or passion came from to you know take a year off of teaching and to to write this book was kind of where is this where is the incongruency between kind of this intellectual skepticism and and what I found is um, from the experience and from kind of just um, the research that I did what I found is is there are there are a few areas. Um, in our faith, there are a few areas that that really don't have anything to do with intellectual skepticism. We're teaching them because what we've done is we've taught them in in our kind of in our generation. What we've done is we've taught them that the most important thing is what is to know Christ. But in teaching them that the most important thing is to know Christ, what we've done is we've forgotten a few other aspects. We've forgotten to teach them or show them or live our lives so that they understand that, yes, it is important to know Christ. But to know Christ is not more important, like to know Christ intellectually is not more important than to serve him and to love him and to walk with him every day and to obey his commandments. So to experience Christ, we've kind of lost out on that as we're teaching them to, to know Christ more. And so, so that's, that's where it started and, 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 um, and where I, where I ended up in, there's, there's kind of three aspects and I'm only, I'm only going to cover one today. Um, but the three aspects were, were, were kind of misteaching our kids or mis, misguiding, I, I should say, our kids about how Christ teaches about purpose. And so their, their ideas of purpose within the church are very skewed. And then living God's will, which is right at the center of purpose, is very skewed at all. But I'm not going to talk about those two things today. What I'm going to talk about today is, um, is what, where it is, this, this, this kind of difference, this kind of difference between, between, um, unity and conformity. And so allowing our kids to actually be individuals within a faith community. And that's what I'm going to talk a little bit about today. And before we jump into that, I'd just like to, uh, I'd like to go back to a story that, that regardless of the generation that you're from, you'll be completely familiar with. And so if you have your Bible and if you have your message in front of you in the pew, um, you can, you can turn to, it's Luke 19. It's Luke 19. And for those of you who are my age, which is like 40s-ish, you'll remember back to, you'll, you'll remember back to, um, back to Sunday school seeing this on Flanagraph. Cause I do. I loved it on Flanagraph. It was like the best, right? As the sycamore tree went up and there was short little Zacchaeus. There he was. I loved it. Um, and then there was, <laughs> there was the song too, right? And so we could all identify, anybody my age can also identify with the song. So it was probably somebody who was 20 years older than me who actually wrote the song. So I suspect that people from the previous generation, the baby boomers, they could probably identify with it too, right? Because Zacchaeus, he was a what? He was a wee little man. (laughs) And a wee little man was he. (laughs) Isn't that mean? Like nowadays, right? That's like, that's like so not politically correct nowadays. If you, and the song, the song itself too, right? It's, it's actually made it through to this generation. 
the gen the gen zetters right anybody born kind of 1995 and after it's actually made it through this generation as well i googled it and there's like it has almost 400,000 hits on youtube the zacchaeus song <laughs> uh, anyways the fact that he was a wee little man so we is actually an adverb describing little which is an adjective describing the man which is a noun right so so by the time we get to the second line of the song we've already established twice that he is a wee little man the bible from luke um in luke 19 verses 1 to 10 this is a very fascinating story and i think this is where we're going to draw kind of where where we can where we can actually relate to this next generation where we're going to draw some of the truths from today and the Bible does actually say that he was short. He was probably the antithesis of Goliath, would be my guess, in the Bible. So he was, he was short. We'll start with that. He was from Jericho. And Christ was coming through Jericho. So I'll just retell the story if you guys would like to read it. But he was coming through Jericho. And Zacchaeus was the, he was the, he was the top dog as far as tax collection in the area. He was, he was where it was at. Zacchaeus was the man, right? He would take everybody's money. And, and it, it's kind of interesting to me because, because it was a job where there was no praise. There was only scorn and derision. It says, like, like the people did not like Zacchaeus. But my guess is, is that Zacchaeus, he learned, he learned kind of a coping mechanism in life because he was atypical. Right? He wasn't like everybody else, and we know that. And so he probably learned this coping mechanism in life. Either life destroys us, or we get this hardened shell, right? Where we can like, we can kind of put up our defenses. And, and for Zacchaeus, I suspect, because of his position in life, he had probably, he'd probably faced a lot of scorn and derision because of his height. And yet, he took that and he kind of rolled with it and he went with it. In other words, people who, people who criticized him when he was taking their money for taxes, he's like, I don't care, right? I've heard that before. Anything you guys say to me, it doesn't matter. So that, and that's a, it might be a little bit of a leap, but I assume that. I just assume that because he was atypical. And so he had to, he had to have some type of a coping mechanism. Anyways, I also suspect that there was something missing in his life. So even though he had acquired, you know, great wealth, he was looking for something else. Because when he heard that this new rabbi was coming to town, he wanted to hear what the rabbi had to say. And so he goes out, he heads out in public, and not only does he head out in public, but he does something that's really, really interesting. He kind of magnifies his shortcoming, and I apologize for the pun, but he magnifies his shortcoming, doesn't he? By doing what? By climbing the tree. So he magnifies that. So he is, so, so it, my guess is that, that he is so in need of kind of this life change where he realizes that, you know, he's kind of made his way through life and he's, you know, he's, he's been successful in, in his business, but he realizes that there's something missing. And so he goes and he climbs this tree. This is where it gets really interesting. And I kind of wonder if as he's up there, I kind of wonder if there were those kids from, you know, there were those kids from high school, right? You know, the ones who like 20 years after high school are still wearing their leather, you know, their, their jackets with the leather sleeves, right? 
let's say like football star, right? I, I apologize if any of you are that person. I apologize. But, but I wonder if there were a few of those in the crowd that recognized Zacchaeus and, and started in on him again. Like, what are you doing up there, you short, wee little man? And I wonder if he started to think, what am I doing up here? But then, then things start to happen. Because the crowd, the crowd starts to buzz a little bit as this man makes his way down the street. Now, we know the man as somebody who has basically defined time. Jesus Christ makes his way down the street. And he doesn't, it's interesting because he doesn't address the crowd. He addresses one individual. And what does he say to Zacchaeus? He says, Zacchaeus, and it's, it's a command. It's a command. He says, come down from there. I must come to your house. Come down from there. I must come to your house. And what's crazy is from what, from what's told in that story, what's crazy is, is that phrase, it transforms Zacchaeus because he says after that, what does he say after that? So, so he comes down from the tree. He goes with Christ. And this is really interesting. Actually, let's back up because there's something that the crowd says. They say, so as the, as the two are walking away, the crowd says, he's gone, he's gone to the house of a sinner. Who are they criticizing there? Are they criticizing Zacchaeus for his shortness? No. They're criticizing Christ. And so you... You wonder just for a second, you wonder, and you wonder if Zacchaeus wondered, if, hey, you know what, all that derision that I've faced over the years because I'm atypical, it actually didn't originate with me. It originated with the people who are calling me down. Because standing in front of me is this awesome rabbi, this awesome teacher and guess what they're doing to him right now? They're deriding him right now. And so you wonder if his eyes were open, if he was like, wow. And so Christ comes down, the two walk away. Zacchaeus says something really interesting. He says, he says everything that I own, I'm going to give half of it to the poor. He said, and if I've, if I've cheated anybody, I'm going to pay them back four times. So his life, it changes in an instant. And not all of ours do. I realize that we're all on this long faith journey. But for Zacchaeus, it did. And then Christ tells Zacchaeus what his purpose is. In the last verse of that anecdote or that story, that narrative, he says, I have come to what? To seek and to save what was lost. That's why I'm here. That's why I arrived. I have come to seek and to save what was lost. Now, within that, within that narrative, I'm just going to take a few things out that we can learn that apply to, the, to our kids, to, to this next generation that our faith community is bringing up. Number one is that when Christ comes to town, he doesn't pay attention to the crowd. 
He pays attention to the individual. In this instance, I'm not saying that he does it all the time. There are other instances in the scriptures as well where he pays attention to the individual, right? The, uh, there's, I believe it's Luke 15 where he talks about, you know, the 99 and the one, the one lost sheep, where he ta- he's, he's addressing the individual. Here he does it with Zacchaeus as well. And here is something that we can learn is that when we are bringing up, when we are bringing up our kids in a faith community, it is really, and, and I say this from experience because, because I know what I was raised in and I, and I don't, I don't, um, regret what I was raised in. I don't regret it at all. But because I can look back, I can see its flaws. And one of, one of the, one of the things that, that I was, that I was raised in is that, is I was, looking back, I was raised in a community that emphasized conformity over unity. And what I mean by that is, is that the faith community that I was raised in, they all wanted everybody to comb their hair the same way. Right, moms? How many of you have done that before I got the saliva? Okay, come on, Johnny, let's get that cowlick down, right? They wanted everybody to do their hair the same way. They wanted everybody to dress the same way. Because if you did it on the outside, then it was good on the inside. Which is not true. And so if, we, if we're doing that with our kids today, if we're raising them in this community of, of kind of conformity, we can only, and, and one of my good friends who's a pastor out on Vancouver Island, when I was talking to him about this, he made a really interesting statement. He said, in a faith community that emphasizes conformity, everybody's got to be the same because, because we make this, you know, we make this false assumption because we're all striving to be more Christ-like. And then people will logically say, well, if we're all going to be more Christ-like, we're all going to be alike. That couldn't be farther from the truth. First Corinthians 12. We're all members of the same body, but we all have different roles. We're not all going to be the same just because we're striving to be more Christ-like. Christ, God is way, way, way bigger than that. He has given us unique skills and he has given us unique gifts so that we might take them and give them back to him as an act of worship. And in doing so, we get to be unique in Christ. And we get to be individuals in Christ. And we get to be individuals as part of a larger, as, a, as part of a larger faith community. It's actually a lovely concept. But if we're, if we're emphasizing kind of this conformity, and this is what my, my pastor friend from Vancouver Island said, and I, I really appreciated this statement. He said, we can, only, we can only end up engendering or raising two things, a hypocrite or a rebel. Our kids are going to become who they are and who Christ has created them to be. And so if we're, if we're saying you have to be this, now, now please don't get me wrong when I'm saying this. I'm not saying that there is not a moral standard because the New Testament talks to us very clearly about what that moral standard is that we need to adhere to. Not, I'm not going there. What I'm saying is, is that if we're, if we're constantly doing this to our kids and placing them in this box that we see what, you know, what 
what it is that Christ has to do in their lives, if we're constantly doing that, we will only raise a hypocrite or a rebel. If we're bringing up our kids in a way where we're living an authentic faith, where we're teaching them that, that, you know, forgiveness is part of everyday life because we need each other and we also mess up. If we're teaching them that, that's a very different concept because that is something that they can walk with every single day of their lives. And so let's, let's work on being a faith community of unity over conformity. Let's do that. And the second thing that we see, the second thing that we see from, from Zacchaeus' story is that, is that Christ changes, and I love this picture, and I chose a little boy specifically, because Christ changes Zacchaeus' reality. He changes his reality. And, and as a, as a faith community, and like I say, I only know this because, because I was brought up in a faith community and I get to look back on that. And there were some wonderful, wonderful, wonderful things about that faith community. But, but they created, we do end up creating this reality, right? We, we create kind of this reality around our kids. And, and the faith community that I was a part of, um, one of the realities, and, and some of you may chuckle at this, one of the realities that they created was that that drums were from the devil. <laughs> I'm sorry, I said devil. No, just kidding. Um, that drums were from the devil, and and it was something that was argued and debated about, and it was it was like it was elevated. It was way up here, and it was interesting because because I had gone off to university and and I had come back and um, and this was a number of years, and my wife and I we got married and. I just condensed like five years into like ten seconds. Um, we came and and so we were back and we were back in this church that we grew up in or that I grew up in and uh, and I thought there was a skit one day because because the youth were leading they were leading worship and it was lovely it was so beautiful they were up and you know they were on the drums and yeah they were behind glass so that they weren't as loud right and and they were and and. And they were playing these wonderful songs to God. And we were, we were all entering into worship. And this lady, this lady comes, she was sitting right where this man is here. I hope I'm not going to go out of range. She was sitting right where this man is here. And she gets up and she, she storms down the aisle. And I'm thinking, oh, this is so cool. It's a drama in church, right? <laughs> and she storms down the aisle and she starts yelling at these kids. This is bar music, she said. This is bar music. Shut it down. And she's yelling. And the, the music did the, it did the, so they're all playing, you know, worshiping. And then it did the whole, like it just kind of stopped, right? And I don't, I don't blame her at all because she was, she was caught up in this concept that, that, that there are certain things or there are certain realities that are more important than the core of the gospel, which there aren't. And so music was one thing that, that we used to, you know, put way up there, right? And then debating, you know, we love to debate with one another about, you know, predestination. We loved that, right? You know, way up there. That was way up there. 
And so, so my reality as I headed off to university is that everybody loved debating and everybody loved debating about drums and, and then I got to university and nobody did. <laughs> we debated about like other things, but like the things that they were debating about, they were like 15 or 20 years behind the times, right? So we have to be careful of the reality that we provide to our kids as part of this faith community. The reality that we need to be providing to them is that, you know, daily we have to deny ourselves. We have to deny our sin nature and take up his cross. The, the core of the gospel, that's the reality that we need to live in front of our kids. That's the reality. Because those things, the core of the gospel, they transition into this wonderful reality when our kids leave our homes. Because when they get out there and they face challenges and they face struggles and they face things that, that they can't overcome, there is, there is this, this kind of core gospel reality that they can just hold on to. I want to, uh, I want to end today and, it, and when I say end, I, I apologize because it'll be a long ending because it's about, <laughs> Because it's about this one student that I had, and 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 I apologize. I do apologize too if I get a little bit emotional. I'll try not to, because nobody, especially like a guest speaker, right? Nobody wants like a, a a blubbering guest speaker, right? That's like the worst thing. I don't even know this guy, and he's crying in front of me. Um, anyways, um, one of uh, one of my students, and and I call him Cameron. The the publisher, my publisher said that I had to change names, and so I did. Um, and so I have to stick with that. So Cameron, he, he graduated, he's, he's a former student of mine. He graduated about six years ago. And, and, uh, and as I was on my sabbatical, um, working on this, working on this book, he, uh, he, we, we bumped into each other. I'll just put it that way. We bumped into each other and, and Cameron in his eyes, you know how how you can you can see a person's life in their eyes if you're paying attention. In his eyes, I was like, one of the first things that struck me about Cameron is that that it they were just devoid of life. And I said to Cameron, I said, "Hey, man, we should like you know we should meet up for coffee, right? We should hang out." And he said, "Yeah, sure." I said, "Can I have your number?" He said, "Yeah." So he gave me his number, and. And I admit, sometimes I am the type of person where I'm like, you know, yeah, we should meet up or yeah, I'll pray for, and I don't. But with Cameron, I could kind of sense this urgency and I didn't even know what it was. It might have just been my soul kind of just, you know, God in me just saying, you know, Derek, you need to meet with this kid. And, and with Cameron, um, I called him up and I think he was really surprised, right? Because he was like, wow, you actually called. And I said, yeah, let's, you know, let's figure out a time. And so we met and we, we went to Starbucks late one night and we, uh, we sat and we talked and, and, and he said, we, when we sat down, he said, <laughs> I'm trying to fight it back here. He said, uh, he said, um, Miss Bird, he said two weeks ago, I was, uh, I was in a psych ward because I tried to take my own life. And I was just like, Phew. like, boom, right? And, and then he said, uh, he said, but, you know, I've, I've, I talked to the psychiatrist about it, and I'm Medicaid, I'm fine now. And I was like, okay, yeah, 
that's, you know, that's great. Wow. Um, I said, so, and I was kind of at a loss for words. And then he said, he said, uh, and you need to know too, right from the start, he's, I'm not a Christian anymore. And I'm like, I said, yeah, I said, that's, you know what, Cameron, that's, that's fine. I said, I'm actually not here to convert you. I'm just here to connect with an old student. That's all. I just want to sit down and, you know, hear your story. I just want to chat. And, uh, and then he said, so right after, right after he said, I'm not a Christian anymore, he made an interesting comment. He said, he's all I want to debate with you right now. He said, I can tell you why evolution is true and creation is not. This kid tried to end his life two weeks earlier and he wanted to debate with me about creation versus evolution. And I said, Cameron, I said, I'm not going to debate with you. I said, we might have a different, a differing opinion. I said, but I'm not going to debate with you. And he said, why? He said, why won't you debate with me? And I said, because Cameron, I've learned a truth in the last year. I said, I've, I've had an opportunity to speak in a lot of different places across Canada and one of the things that, that I was doing after I'd speak is I would meet one-on-one with people that I was speaking with and hear and just listen to their story. And it wasn't part of any faith group or, or church. It was, you know, we were going to businesses and doing this. And the one thing that, that I was blown away at, I said to Cameron, is that, is that there is, there is a, you know, our, our country, our, our nation is filled with people that have a lifetime full of experiences. You know, they've lived their dream. They've built their houses. They've bought their cars that they want to buy. They've, you know, they've done it all. But they have this lifetime full of experiences, full of, you know, guilt and full of, of you know, shame. And, you know, they have kids that, you know, don't want to talk to them anymore. They have kids who are in jail. They have, they have all these, you know, all these issues that they have no idea what to do with. And he kind of just sat there. And he's all, why didn't you tell me that when we were in high school or when I was in high school? I was like, because I didn't know that then. I know that now. And we sat and chatted and, and then the coffee shop closed and we went and stood outside. It was Vancouver Island, so we stood outside in the rain for a little bit. And, uh, and he said, he said, Miss Bird, he said, I can, you know, I can debate both sides of a topic. He said, I can, I can be rude when I'm around my buddies who are rude. I can be a gentleman when I'm around my girlfriend's parents. He said, I can be anything to anybody. And then he said, I have no idea who I am. And when he said that to me, I thought, there I was. I was like, you know, he's, he's basically this, you know, this poster child for what I'm talking about, about kids that have lost their faith. He's this poster child for it. And I don't blame the church and I don't blame the school, the Christian school that he went to because he was raised in the church and he was raised in the Christian school. And I don't blame those two institutions for where he ended up. I just wondered how we can be part of a solution now that we know that, that this happens and that this exists. And, you know, why? I, I don't know. Like if you, you know, talk to, you know, if you talk to Calvinists, and I don't know enough about your church to know if you guys are Calvinists or not, so please don't say that, think that I'm like talking down to you right now. If you talk to Calvinists, they might say, well, he just wasn't chosen, right? He just wasn't chosen by God. If you talk to Armenianists, they might say, well, he'll, Cameron, he'll choose God at some point in his life. If you talk to conservative Christians, 
they might say, well, you know, he was just exposed too early, right? Too early to things that he wouldn't have been exposed to. And if you talk to liberal Christians, they might say, well, it was the Christian school. He was sheltered too much for too long. And I kind of wonder what Christ would say with this group of people. What would he say? And I've wondered that for a while. And what I think that he would say would actually be found in Matthew 20. If they came over and asked Christ, he would probably stoop down and write in the sand a little bit. And then he might pop up and say, you know what? There was a guy who owned a vineyard. And then they would kind of like, I envision them kind of going, oh, we're not talking about vineyards. Let's go over and debate. Let's go discuss, you know, Cameron's salvation. And then, and then Christ, I envision him going up and putting his arm around Cameron and saying, hey, Cameron, come and walk with me for a bit because I think that you're in a place where you're ready to hear about a guy who owns a vineyard. And this guy who owns this vineyard, he went out at the start of the day he went out to the, to the marketplace and he found workers and he invited them in. And as they walked, he would say, and they worked and I agreed to pay them a, den- a denarius, a day's wage for, a, for a, a day's work. And then I realized that I needed more and so I went back out to the marketplace and I found more and they came with me and I agreed to pay them a fair wage. And then I went out two more times, even right to the end of the day I went out. And I found more people, and they came in and worked. And I agreed to pay them what was fair. And then the end of the day came. And I started with the people that I had brought in right at the end of the day. And I paid them more than what was fair. I was generous, and I paid them a full day's wage. Even though they only worked for an hour, I paid them a full day's wage. And the problem is, Cameron, is that something happened with the people that had been working with me the whole day. They got upset. They got angry. And they came to me and they said, that's not fair, right? Because you're paying us a full day's wage and we worked all day. And you're paying him a full day's wage or them a full day's wage and they only worked for an hour. And then the landowner says, or the vineyard owner, he says, and you guys have vineyards in, in Creston. This is a wonderful little place. I love this place. The vineyard owner, he says, the landowner, he says, he says, why do you discuss, why do you debate with me what I'm doing with my own money? Is it your envy that is getting in the way of seeing my generosity? In other words, guess what? It's not about you. It's about me and what I've given and what I'm going to give. And this is one of the greatest paradoxes in all of the scriptures and, one, and, a, and a paradox that is so core when he says this. When he says to the people who are complaining, at the, because, and, these, and these are the kids that we're raising in our faith community, right? They're the ones that are working right at the start of the day. And he says, so the first will be last and the last will be first. And for the longest time, I always assumed That that was just, that that was like, okay, well, you know, the people that come at the start of the day, they're going to be last. But you know what? He's not saying that. What he's saying is, if you get angry and upset and you start comparing yourself to other people, then you lose sight of what's truly important. 
you lose sight of the core of the gospel. You lose sight of that. And you start to focus on self. In other words, when you start to focus on yourself, you put yourself in last place. Because I can only give you, the most that I can give you is an eternity with me in paradise. That's the most I can give you. Do you accept it or don't you? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much. First of all, I thank you for Tom, Lord God. I thank you for um, the work that you're doing through him in this faith community. I thank you that he can get away and get some rest Uh, He and his wife this weekend, bless them, Lord God, bless them richly. Um, And then I pray today, Lord God, that that uh, well, the psalmist says in Psalm 71, 18, he says, even when I'm old and gray, do not forsake me until. Until I speak your truth, your power to the next generation and your might to all who come after. And so I pray that that becomes um, a seed that, it, that is embedded in our hearts, Lord God. Whether we are somebody that has, has lived most of our lives and has wisdom beyond belief that we can impart to this new generation, or we're somebody who's right in the thick of it, who's raising kids to carry on the torch after, after we're, after we're you know, serving you or when we're serving you in eternity, Lord. Please make that our prayer, that even when we're old and gray, that we will, that we will impart your wisdom to the next generation. In your name, amen.